Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Scripture reading this morning is again going to be Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. We started looking at these verses uh, last Sunday, uh, and we will conclude our study, Lord willing, uh, this morning. So Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 14 through 18. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 875. Luke chapter 16, beginning... At verse 14, listen to this. This is the very word of God. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. For everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery." That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word. We ask that the same Spirit who inspired Luke to write these words would now be here present and active among us, opening our minds to receive and to believe Your Word, and empowering us that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, when we first looked at these verses, we learned that there is a type of obedience that God hates. Now, that's somewhat shocking to our ears. We're not used to thinking of God as hating obedience. Rather, we we think of obedience as something that God delights in, as something that, that God loves. But clearly, it's what Jesus says here in these verses. Look again at verse 15. He says to the Pharisees in response to their ridicule, he says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, and what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You here clearly refers to the Pharisees. That's whom Jesus is addressing, and he refers to them as those who justify themselves Before men, that is, that they are those who who obey the law, who do right things in order to be righteous in the sight of men, in order to garner the praise of men as those who are holy, as those who are devoted, as those who are pious. But Jesus says that God is not impressed. God knows their hearts. And, And more than this, he says that what they're doing is actually an abomination in his sight. Notice what he says. He says, that which is exalted in the sight of men. He says, you are are doing this to exalt yourself in the sight of men. And because you do it to exalt yourself in the sight of men, your obedience is actually disdainful. It is an abomination in the sight of God. 
Now we need to be careful at this point. As we saw last week, this does not mean that, that God is against doing good works that are seen by men. He's, he's, not even doing, uh, he's not even against doing good works that are praised by men. Elsewhere, Jesus actually commands his disciples to be lights on a hill, to do their good works publicly so that people will see them and give praise to God. It's not that he is against doing good works in public. But rather what God is against is doing good works in order to impress people, in order to garner their praise, in order to establish yourself as as someone who is impressive and upright in their sight. It is the motive that Jesus is addressing. It is a matter of the heart. And he says if you're doing your good deeds in order to be seen by men, then that is a type of obedience that God hates. This was our focus last Sunday, and I told you that that we need to be willing to examine ourselves in the light of this Scripture. We need to be willing to examine our hearts. We need to be willing to examine the motivations of our obedience. Why do we do the things we do? We even heard about it in Sunday school this morning. What really is driving the life we're living? What is the, the true motivation? It's a question that we must ask ourselves, because we, we need to recognize that there is an obedience that is displeasing to our Lord. But it would be a huge mistake to, to hear that and then jump to the conclusion that, that obedience itself is something that God doesn't like or that, that God isn't interested. Yes, there is an obedience that God hates, But there's also an obedience that God delights in, that God loves, and that God even requires of His children. And this is the point that Jesus is making in the second half of this text, and it's going to be our focus this morning. This morning, we are going to focus on the obedience that God delights in, the obedience that God loves, the obedience that God requires. We see it beginning in verse 16. Notice what Jesus says. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. We looked at these verses briefly last Sunday, but but think about what these verses mean. Jesus is clearly pointing to himself as as some sort of transition. He is a, a transition between what was and what is. Previously, there were the law and the prophets. Now is the good news of the kingdom. We would refer to this as previously there was the Old Testament. That's the age of the law and the prophets. But now is the age of the New Testament or the the new covenant. And so we must ask ourselves, what is the the difference between the old and the new? What is this major transition that, that has come with the coming of Jesus? Well, if we begin to think about it, we can recognize that the Old Testament or the, the age of the law and the prophets, that this was an age of promise. This was an age when God promised what He was going to do. When He came to His people, He entered into covenant with them, and He said, you will be My people, I will be your God, and here is the blessing that I am going to pour out. It was promised. It was told to them, but it was not yet delivered. They did not yet possess it. It was an age of of looking forward to what God was going to do. And in that age of promise... The law and the prophets governed. The law and the prophets ruled over God's people. Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says that the law served as a sort of tutor to God's people in their childhood. 
The law was their tutor. It was the one who was bringing them up. It was the one who was teaching them how to live as the children of God. And so the Old Testament was an age of law. Now we need to be careful at that point. Because that can easily be misunderstood. This does not mean that salvation was through the law in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament it's through grace. One of the fundamental truths that we hold to here, one of the the fundamental truths that we proclaim is that salvation has always and ever only been through faith in Jesus Christ. No one was ever saved apart from Christ. In the Old Testament, they were saved by looking forward to the promised Messiah and their faith in the one who would be provided. In In the New Testament, we now look back to the one who has come. But always and ever, salvation has been through faith in Jesus, through faith in God's promised Messiah. Salvation has never been any other way than by grace. So if salvation wasn't through the law, what does it mean to say that the law governed in the Old Testament? Well, there was a law that they were subject to. And that law served a purpose in the people of, for the people of God. And one of the primary functions of that law... One of the primary purposes of them living under the law was to actually show them their need of salvation by grace. It was actually to show them that salvation by works was impossible. Think about it. The law says, do this and live. And of course, the flip side of that is, don't do this and die. This is why Moses says to the people of Israel, he says, today I have set before you life and death. Do this and you will live. Don't do this and you will die. It is, it is the, the standard that God sets before the people. But what the law did is the law showed them continually that they could not attain life through the law. Why? Not because there was anything wrong with the law. The law was good. The law was perfect. The law was, was righteous. It was holy and good according to Paul. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with the people who were under the law. The problem was that they were sinners. The problem was that they had inherited a corrupt nature from their first father, Adam. And in Adam, as sinners, they could not keep the law. They they could not earn for themselves life through the law. That's what Paul says for us in in Romans chapter 8. He says, now in Christ, God has done what previously could not be done through the law, not because there was anything wrong with the law, but because of the sinfulness of human flesh. And so sinners under the law cannot attain life through the law because for sinners, the law can only bring death. The law brings judgment. The law brings condemnation. And so the Old Testament people were under the law that they might see the hopelessness of their condition, that they might see their desperate need for a Savior. And now, today is the age of that salvation. Now today is the day when that Savior has come. It is the age of the Gospel. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. He says, but now, but now what? But now a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. A righteousness that is apart from the law. Under the law, the the people could not attain righteousness because they could not keep the law. But now, a righteousness that is apart from the law has been 
revealed. This is what Paul refers to as salvation by grace through faith. It's it's what we prayed in our prayer of confession this morning. We are people who have been saved not because of works we have done, but because of works done for us by another. We have been saved by grace through faith. Now, I thought this was completely unknown in the Old Testament. Paul himself tells us that this was promised beforehand. He tells us that the law and the prophets bore witness to it. So what was this testimony? What were these hints that we saw in the Old Testament that that bore witness to this coming gospel? Well, it was none other than the sacrificial system. You see, along with the law, God also gave to His Old Testament people a sacrificial system, a system of of sacrifices and ceremonies that demonstrated that while they were in themselves sinners, while they were in themselves unclean and and cut off from uh, the worship of the one true God, nevertheless, a way could be made for them through the blood of a substitute. Through the blood of a, another shed for their sins, they could be made clean. They could be brought near. This was the, the, the foreshadowing of the gospel that was to come. But of course, as the author of Hebrews tells us, while these sacrifices pointed the way, the blood of bulls and goats could not actually do the job. The blood of bulls and goats could not actually cover our our sins. The the sacrifice pointed to the solution, but they were not themselves the solution. They were simply a foreshadowing of what was necessary. And that is the great transition that inaugurates the, the, the gospel era. When the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is no longer simply promised, but He actually comes. He comes and He lays down His life as the ransom price for sinners. To redeem them from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for them. What inaugurates the the New Testament era, what inaugurates the, the, the good news of the kingdom is that there is a Lamb who has been slain. And by His precious blood, we have been redeemed. We have been rescued. We have been saved. This is the gospel of the kingdom. You see, the gospel of the kingdom is not only that the king has come. It's not only that that the king who's going to put all things right is, is now here. That is true and that is good. But think about it. That by itself is not actually good news. When the king comes, that is, that is not something to be celebrated for, for everyone. My, my children are, are currently watching a BBC show called Robin Hood. You know, and you all, all know the story of Robin Hood. You know, Richard the king is, is out of town, and there's a sheriff, and he's, he's not a nice guy, and he's, he's ruling over uh, this territory in the king's name. But every once in a while, someone will refer to the day when Richard is going to come home. And I can promise you, when Richard comes home, that will not be good news for the sheriff. And that will not be good news for those who are loyal to him. That the king has come is not good news for the traitors living in his kingdom. What makes the coming of the king good news? What makes the coming of the king good news is the fact that the king has not only come to establish his kingdom, but that he has come to lay down his life, to shed his blood, that those who are traitors deserving of his judgment might be forgiven and might be made heirs, that they might be given the treasures of the kingdom, that they might enter into his joy at cost to the king himself. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The king has come and he has made a way for you 
and all of your sin and all of your failing, He has made a way for you to inherit this kingdom. And so the first question we must ask ourselves this, this morning is simply, have you believed this gospel? Is this the gospel in which you stand daily? Have you acknowledged your hopeless estate apart from Christ? Have you acknowledged that you are a sinner justly deserving of God's condemnation? I heard a song yesterday as I was driving with my daughter. It's a new song by a guy named Ed Sheeran, if I pronounce that correct. And, and it's a good song. It's actually a beautiful song. It's a song about the death of his mother. And as he sings about his grief over the death of his mother, the, the hope that sustains him, through the death of his mother, is that God has now received his mom into his very presence. And the reason he is sure of this is because his mom was an angel. His mom was an angel. And so therefore he is sure God must have received. And then there's that hope after death that sustains him. And it's that hope after death that lets him grieve without falling into despair. But I want you to hear this morning, it is a false hope. He is listening to the prophets of this age who are false prophets, who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because his mom was not an angel. His mom was a sinner. I don't say that because I know her. I say that because she was a daughter of Eve. She was a sinner, justly deserving, and apart from the shed blood of Christ, there is no hope for her or for anyone else. Apart from Christ, we are under condemnation. Do you know your hopelessness apart from Christ? Do you know that your only hope of salvation is in His blood shed for you? And do you now rest upon Him for that gift? Have you believed this gospel? If you have, hear the good news. The promise is that if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have received Him and rested upon Him for salvation, then you have been delivered from the wrath to come. It no longer stands as a threat against you. It has been, the the record that, that stands against you has been nailed to the cross. Your guilt has been removed as far as the east is from the west. You are now a beloved child of God, not because of anything you have done, but because of what has been done for you by another. You stand as a beloved child of God because of what Christ has done, because of His bloodshed. That's why we sing, Jesus, thank You. Thank You. This is nothing we could have ever done for ourselves. We have been saved by grace through faith apart from works. That is the essence and the heartbeat of the gospel. And Jesus wants us to see it. In fact, he says, listen, if you hear this gospel, you ought to force your way in. You ought to let nothing hold you back. You ought to come to me with utter abandon, willing to lose even your life to partake of this salvation. But, but, it would be a huge mistake to conclude that because you have been saved by grace through faith apart from works, that therefore God has no interest works. This is the point that Jesus begins to make in verse 17. Notice what he says. He says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So he's just said there's been a major transition. Previously it was the law and the prophets, but now the kingdom of God is proclaimed. The good news of the kingdom, the gospel. And those who hear it force their way in, but don't think that the law has now become 
void. Don't think that the law has now no purpose in this gospel era. There is a point for the gospel even now. The gospel still rules. We've been delivered from the law as law, as the means by which to establish our righteousness with God. Because our righteousness has been established by another. But the law is still our guide. It is still God's word to us as His children. In fact, we can say that we have been set free from the law, that we might live in accord with the law. That's what we see in so many texts. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2. That great text where, where Paul says we have been saved by grace through faith apart from works. He goes on to say, and we are now His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have been saved apart from works for good works. We have been saved apart from our own efforts that we might now devote ourselves to to keeping the law. He says it also in in Romans chapter 1. Romans, Paul's great announcement of the gospel to the church in Rome. He says, listen, it is my eager desire to come to you and to, to preach the gospel. Why? Why does he want to preach this gospel of justification by faith alone apart from works? So that he might bring forth what? The obedience of faith even in Rome. The goal of his preaching is that that the, the fruit of obedience might come forth, might be brought forth. He says it also in Titus chapter 2. He says that, that grace has now appeared in Christ. We have been redeemed through the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? That we might become a people zealous for good works. This is what we have been redeemed for. It's the point that Jesus is making here. Yes, the gospel has come But do not think that that means the law has been set aside. We have been rescued from the law that we might actually now begin to submit to the law. Not as a way of establishing our own righteousness before God, but as a way of entering into the life that He has called us to. You see, we speak of eternal life. This is the the blessing. This is the blessing that is ours. Life, the life of the age to come. And the blueprint for that life, the, the the. the pattern for the life of blessing that God has called us to, the, 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 the schematics for a life of true flourishing is found nowhere else but in the law. This is why the, the psalmist can speak of the law as sweeter than honey. This is why the, the psalmist who, who elsewhere can say, listen, if you judge us by the law, no one could stand before you. But he can also say, the law is more precious to me than silver, and it is my delight to meditate on it day and night. Only one who's been rescued from the law can now return to the law in delight. But why is it that the law still holds sway? Why is it that we must still live under the law? Why why can't God just set that, that aside? Well, think about it for a moment. Why is it that the law cannot become void? Why is it that the law cannot simply be repealed? The reason that God's law cannot be simply set aside is because God's law was never simply an arbitrary list of rules. God's law was never just a, you know, where he was sort of just going through and saying, well, I think I'll make him do this, 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 and and this. No, God's law is a reflection of his character. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 1 that, that, that in creation we see, we see the very character of God. It's not just that we see that there's a God there. We, we see the kind of God who's, who's there. 
Because God has woven his law into the very fabric of the the universe. It, it, It is a reflection of who he is. God could not have decided that adultery and, and murder and lying were good things. Not because he is bound by some law higher than himself, but simply because of who he is. His character determines what is good. His character determines what is right. And if his character does not change, then the law cannot change. The law directs us how we might, what? How we might glorify him. How we might reflect his glory. How we might be his image bearers. And so if the God that we are reflecting does not change, then the law cannot change. And so the law that was given to the people in the Old Testament, of the law which condemned them, is now a light unto our feet. It is now a lamp unto our path. It shows us the way to walk in true blessing. And it cannot change. It cannot be set aside. That's not that hard to understand. God doesn't change, therefore the law can't change. But it is a little problematic. Because when you start reading through the Scriptures, you begin to say, well, but haven't some of the laws changed? How do we make sense of this? Some of the laws actually have changed, God. You know, didn't Jesus himself change some of the laws? Think back to to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man's mouth, but it's what comes out of a man's mouth that makes him clean. And Mark adds the commentary saying, listen, in saying this, he declared all foods clean. In saying this, he set aside the the food laws from the Old Testament. How can that be if the law doesn't change? We see something similar where, where the New Testament church says, if you're going to be one of God's children, you do not have to be circumcised. Circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing. Certainly that wasn't true in the Old Testament. How can that be? How can these laws change if the law never changes? It's a good question and it deserves a a careful answer. And of course what we have to recognize is that in the Old Testament there were different sorts of laws. There were different types of of laws. Now, all the laws were God's laws. All the laws were given to God's people, and and the people of God were under obligation to obey all of them. So don't think that, well, some laws were optional and some laws were were required. That's not what this is. But there were different types of laws. And theologians have, have generally categorized those as moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. And when we begin to understand this distinction, we can begin to understand how the law doesn't change, and yet certain aspects of the law have been set aside. So let's think about what these three, character, these three categories represent. What is moral law? Well, the moral law is those laws that most directly uh, simply codify the moral fabric of the universe. These are the laws that set forth the moral principles that, that govern God's people. These laws, because they are principial, because they are uh, reflections of, of the moral fabric of the universe, they apply at all times and all places to all people. We see this most clearly in the Ten Commandments, but uh, you can imagine what these laws are. Do not murder, do not bear false witness, do not covet, do not have any other gods before me. This is, this is the, the very moral foundation of the universe. These are the moral laws, but there are also civil laws in the Old Testament. 
And these civil laws are actually applications of the moral law to a particular historical context. If you want to know what does it mean not to murder, well, the the civil laws which were given to Israel help us to understand what it meant not to murder in their particular context. Context. So, for example, one civil law that, that we point to often was the, the rule that, if, that you had to have a, a, a fence around your ceiling, around the, around the roof of your house. You had to have a, a fence. You had to have a parapet. I don't have a parapet around the roof of my house. Most of you probably don't either. Why? Well, because the historical context has changed. But it doesn't mean that that law has become void. What does that law tell us? It it tells us that that the command not to murder means that we ought to do our due diligence to actually protect the life of our neighbor. It means that we actually ought not to uh, threaten the life of our neighbor or even the health of our neighbor by, by gross negligence. And so we do things like put up fences around swimming pools. In order to keep children out. This is a, a, a change in the historical context, but still an application of the law. The civil laws were an application of the moral law to a particular historical context. Some of those have been set aside because the historical context has changed, but the principle has not changed. The law has not changed. The third kind of law is the law for uh, ceremonies, the, the ceremonial law. And here we say that these ceremonial laws, they were a, they were a pedagogical tool. They were a, a teaching tool. They were meant to teach God's people about their relationship to Him and His relationship to them. And these ceremonial laws pointed us forward to Christ. They told us that you have to be clean to come into the presence of God. That you cannot come into His presence unclean or that or it won't be safe for you. They, they, they told us how one who was unclean might become clean through, through the sacrifice of another, through the one who was pure and had no, was without blemish and had no sins of their own. But these laws, these ceremonial laws, they pointed us towards Christ. And when Christ came, the ceremonies were set aside because the substance had come. But do you see, the laws didn't become void. They weren't just simply repealed, but rather they were fulfilled. They were fulfilled because the substance had come. What they pointed to was now here. And when you begin to recognize that we have these three different types of laws, we have moral laws, civil laws, and and ceremonial laws, with these categories in mind, you you begin to recognize, yes, okay, the law doesn't change. Maybe the application changes. Maybe, maybe what it looks like in a particular situation changes, but the law itself does not change because the God who gave the law does not change. The moral fabric of the universe does not change because the God who created it sustains it as He made it from the beginning. And this has clear implications for us today. This has clear implications for those who would be followers of Christ living in the age of the Gospel. Think about what this means. This means that the fundamentals of the moral life are the same as they have always been. Sometimes people today want to say, well, you know, we're not under the law. We're just under the law of love. You know, we just have to love one another. Have you ever heard that? As if that somehow relaxed things a bit. Read the New Testament. Read what love looks like. And then hear Paul say, listen, if you're keeping the law, you're loving your neighbor. If you're loving your neighbor, you will be keeping the law. The two cannot be separated. The law shows us what it looks like to love. Just because something feels loving to you doesn't mean it actually is loving. Not at all. 
In fact, there are many things the world does today in, in a professed desire to love their neighbor that are killing their neighbor, that are, that are dragging their neighbor towards death. Jesus said of the Pharisees that when you make a convert, you, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. And I would say that of many today. There are many today who, who try to convert people to this sense of loving their neighbor, but in doing so, they teach them to actually hate their neighbor without knowing it. Because how do you love, not according to your own imagination, but according to what the God of the universe tells you is loving the moral requirements of life in the kingdom cannot and have not changed. And so if you are a disciple of Christ, you have been set free from the law so that you might now walk in accord with the law. Some of the particulars, some of the, the civil particulars, some of the, the ceremonial particulars, they, they have changed. They have been fulfilled. But the moral law that lays at the foundation is forever and will be forever because it reflects the character of a God who is, who was, and who will always be without any shadow of turning or change. So that is where we are this morning. We are people who have been set free from the law in order that we might now keep the law. Now Jesus gives us an example here, and we're going to have to wait for that next week because we're not going to get to it. But hear this simple truth. You are not under the law. You have been set free from the law. This is the age of the gospel of the kingdom. You do not have to keep the law in order to establish your righteousness for God. Your righteousness with God has been established by the work of another. He kept the law perfectly for you. And then He took the curse of the law fully for you. It's what this table is all about. His body broken. His blood poured out. He did this for you. That you who were justly deserving only of His wrath might instead know only His blessing. He did this for you. But He did this. That He might rescue you from the enslavement of sin and set you free to walk in the law which is His blessing for His people. He set you free from the law that you might walk in accord from the law. That you might know all the joys of the life of the age to come. And because He has done that for us. Because He set us free to be slaves of righteousness. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. Father, we, we can barely begin to comprehend the mercy that has been shown to us in Christ because we see so little of our hopeless condition. Father, I thank You for what we do see. I thank You for the eyes that You have given us. And we pray that You would open our eyes more and more and more. First, to see our sin. But more than that, Father, to see the wonders and the depths and the heights and the breadth of Your love for us in Christ Jesus. That as great as our sin is, Your mercy is greater. And that all who call upon the name of Your Son, they will not be put to shame, but they will be delivered from the wrath to come. And they will be received into Your kingdom and made heirs of Your great abundance. Father God, this is what we ask. Show us this Gospel and give us the grace to walk in it day by day by day. Both for Your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.